A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Today, we're going to be spending a few minutes looking at a passage of Scripture and the very last letter that Paul ever wrote, at least the last inspired letter, probably the very last letter. It's a letter we call 2 Timothy. Fascinating letter. Always brings me to tears when I read it through. Of course, we learn most of what we know about the Apostle Paul from the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke around 62 AD, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And Luke, of course, was Paul's very close friend, a fellow minister, traveling companion on his missionary journeys. Dr. Luke, we call him, the man Paul called the beloved physician. The book of Acts tells us about Paul's three missionary journeys, which took place between 47 and 57 AD, roughly. After that third missionary journey, God allowed Paul to go back to Jerusalem because Paul wanted so desperately to have the opportunity to share the gospel with the Jewish people. And even though God had made it very clear to Paul that the Jewish people as a whole simply would not listen to Paul, that just didn't compute in Paul's brain. It didn't make sense to Paul. So God very graciously allowed Paul to learn it by personal experience. I mean, his desire was good, of course, to want to preach the gospel to his people. But of course, God was right. They didn't listen. But Paul did his best. He finally got an opportunity to preach to a large crowd of Jews. But when in his message, he mentioned to his Jewish listeners that God had sent him to the Gentiles, they went into a rage. They hated the Gentiles. They considered them unclean. They were to despise people. They weren't Jews. <laughs> they weren't part of God's plan. That's what the Jews thought. <laughs> and so they became an angry mob. I mean, they were serious about this. They tried to kill Paul just because he mentioned the word Gentiles. Well, he was rescued by some Roman soldiers, and that eventually led to Paul appealing to Caesar. It turned out to be the only way he could avoid being murdered by the Jews, and God wasn't through with Paul yet. So around 60 AD, after a harrowing trip across the Mediterranean Sea in a Roman merchant vessel, which included a terrifying storm, eventual shipwreck, we can read all about this in in the book of Acts, Paul finally arrived at Rome. And in Rome, he lived under house arrest for a couple of years. And Luke ends the book of Acts right there. Paul's under house arrest at Rome. But that wasn't quite the end of Paul's life. Eventually, he was released from this imprisonment probably 62 AD, maybe four or five years before his final imprisonment. And of course, that final imprisonment led to his death by beheading 67 AD. We don't have great records of all that Paul did from the release of that first imprisonment when Luke finished Acts until his death about five years later. 
But Clement of Rome, have you heard of him? Pastor of Rome after the New Testament had basically been completed. But Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Of course, this is not part of scripture. This is just a, a letter written by a pastor to a fellow church. And he wrote around 95 AD. And he wrote that Paul went to the farthest bounds of the West. That was the way Clement said it. He, he went to the farthest bounds of the West. Well, in those days, that meant Spain. And there were other writers a little later in the second century that mentioned Paul's trip to Spain. So we don't really have scriptural authority for this. It might not be true, but we believe Paul finally did make it all the way to Spain. He wanted to go there. We know that because he mentioned it to the Romans, that he hoped to go to see the Romans on his way to Spain. But we do know that he wrote three personal letters during the time after his release from that first imprisonment uh, leading up to, the, to his death. He wrote three letters. He may have written more, but we know that three were definitely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God because they're in the Scripture, part of God's Word. We call those letters 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then the third one would be Titus. And he wrote his first letter to Timothy and also his letter to Titus earlier than he did 2 Timothy. Later on, just before he was beheaded, he wrote his second letter to Timothy, and that's what we're looking at today. Paul's final letter, probably around 66 A.D., a very, very powerful letter. We're going to spend time today looking at, for just a few minutes at chapter 3, maybe a little bit of chapter 4. So first, let's just read it, beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, this is God's Word we're reading. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Now that's the end of chapter 3, but I want us to go just a bit further into chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is God's word. And it's obviously an extremely powerful and extremely timely portion of God's word. If you're a follower of Jesus, as I read those words, your heart was pierced by God's word. I guarantee these are powerful words from God. Very, very timely, aren't they? All right, let's look at it a little more slowly now. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The word translated difficulty is a very strong word here. It implies fierceness, a really fierce kind of difficulty. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew. And in Matthew, it's actually translated fierce in the ESV. The context there makes it clear that fierce is definitely the right word. Let's look at that verse. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So fierce, there it is, so fierce that no one could pass that way. John Stott says that the word was often used in classical Greek to refer to wild animals. So Paul tells Timothy, times are going to be fierce. Men are going to be acting like wild animals. They're going to tear people apart. Then he tells them why the times will be so fierce. And notice he doesn't mention earthquakes here or famines or disease epidemics. He could have. We know those things will be part of the end times because John mentions those things in his book of Revelation. But Paul doesn't. Paul says that what makes these times so fierce isn't the natural disaster so much as the way sinful people will be behaving. Look at verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. It's a perfect place to begin, isn't it? Because that's the root of all sin, isn't it? It's all about me. So I'm, I'm number one. I want to take care of myself. I'm going to look out for myself. And sadly, this is the heart of the worldview of many, many people today. And people are actually encouraging their kids and other people as well, to adopt this worldview and make everything all about me. And the truth is, we don't really need much encouragement to love ourselves, do we? We do it pretty naturally. It leads to great sin. And yet, in the name of self-esteem, which is supposed to be a wonderful thing, our schools teach this, parents teach this, grandparents teach this, we encourage our kids to think that life is all about them. When we or the school systems or whoever encourage self-esteem, and when we leave God out of it, now did you hear that, what I said? When we leave God out of it, which of course the schools are demanded that they do, they've got to leave God out of it. What we're doing is encouraging kids to think more highly of themselves than they ought. We're encouraging them to be part of what Paul's condemning here. Do you understand that? We're, we're, we don't need to be building pride. <laughs> Instead of trying to build our kids' self-esteem, we need to do our best to build their Christ-esteem. Do you see the difference? I'm not saying we shouldn't tell kids that are not important. They are very, very important. It's just that we've got to keep God part of this picture. Then we can teach them, you are incredibly important to God, little kid. And yes, if you will trust Jesus, 
God has a wonderful, incredibly important life for you. But if you make all of life all about yourself, your self-esteem will lead you into pride and destruction. It's dangerous. It's deadly. One of the great problems of our age is people loving themselves more and more and more and loving God and loving others less and less and less. It's the very opposite of what Jesus teaches us. You remember what Jesus said? You want to come with me? You want to be my follower? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. But here, Paul tells us in the last days, there won't be much of that going on. There won't be much self-denial. Men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. That's the next one. Lovers of money. We're drowning in greed, aren't we? You know that. Everybody struggles with this. People who have very little money can be so greedy for more that they'll do just about anything they can to make sure somebody's elected to high office that will promise to take money away from the people who have it, the rich guys like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos, and, and give it to them. Poor old them. They need that money. <laughs> Pay for my college or whatever. <laughs> On the other hand, people who do have a lot of it will do almost anything to keep what they've got and often they do anything to get more and more of it if they can. They're kind of driven by that. You've seen that a lot, including taking advantage of people sometimes, cheating people sometimes, stealing. Remember Paul's warning, this is back in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, there are those who think that gaining money somehow proves godliness. He said, there are people like that. And, but he said, those people have corrupt minds and that we should withdraw from them. He went on to say, look at verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Did you hear that? If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And in these last days, he says, men will be lovers of money. And we see it all around. Proud, he says, arrogant, abusive. That sounds a lot like 21st century American politics, doesn't it? But it's not just politics. It's everywhere. It comes from the first thing on the list. We love ourselves too much. Disobedient to their parents. Many, many kids today are being encouraged to believe that their opinions, their personal opinions as a kid, their moral judgments as a kid, their ideas of what's best and what's right as a kid are more important and valid than anything their parents or anybody else tries to teach them. They're hearing that from a lot of different directions today. Ungrateful. Of course, when we leave God out of our lives, we start forgetting where our blessings come from. We leave Thanksgiving out, don't we? We don't, we don't give thanks. We're not full of gratitude. A lot of people start thinking, oh, I've got all these blessings because I'm lucky. <laughs> or I've got all these blessings because I'm clever. Or I've got all these blessings because I'm so intelligent. <laughs> but they're ungrateful. It's a problem. It's sinful. It's disgusting. Unholy, he adds. These are people for whom nothing is sacred. Just make everything into a joke. If somebody starts to talk about holiness in a serious way, they just roll their eyes. That's weird stuff. Unholy. Verse 3, he says, they're heartless, unloving, cruel. They have a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of an attitude. He also says they're unappeasable. That means they're going to hold grudges. They're going to refuse to forgive others. They're going to be determined to get revenge. They're slanderous. New American Standard translates this. They're malicious gossips. 
They'll say anything about others to bring somebody else down. They'll gladly tell vicious lies about other people if it advances their cause, whatever that cause might be. Think back to the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. Do you remember that? Were you watching that? Or a few decades ago of Clarence Thomas or Robert Bork. Horribly slanderous, disgusting. But it was about secularized people who didn't really have any respect for God at all. Without self-control, he says, the Holy Spirit within us produces self-control. Remember, that's in Galatians chapter 5, part of the fruit of the Spirit. They don't have any of this. They just go with their emotions, go with their urges, their desires, their passions, anger, no self-control. Brutal, harsh, and cruel. Not loving good. They're only interested in what will advance themselves, what they perceive is in their best interest, not what's good. For example, it was once believed by almost everybody that life was good. Do you remember that? <laughs> I hope you believe that now. Life was one of those unalienable rights given to us by God it's in our Declaration of Independence, right? But now we have many, many people who don't believe that anymore. They embrace abortion. They think there's something better than letting that baby live. They embrace euthanasia. They embrace assisted suicide. They, they even embrace infanticide in some cases. All kinds of things that are anything but good. They're horrific. They embrace the sexual revolution, the gender revolution, things that somehow they perceive as in their best interest. And if we do that, we prove we don't love the thing that God, and really only a few decades ago, a vast majority of people recognize as good. God's word, God's truth, life. Treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Again, it's all about self-gratification, self-indulgence, self-glorification. If others get hurt, that's too bad. That's just the way life is. David Guzik told a, a story about a 63-year-old married woman who wrote to Dear Abby. He found this in a Dear Abby column to justify her adultery. And this is what the woman wrote. She said, he's also married. We meet once a week at a motel for three hours of heaven. My husband knows nothing about this, and neither does my lover's wife. Sex with my husband is even better now, and it's not as though I'm denying my husband anything. I teach a class at church every week, but for some reason I feel no guilt. What did Paul say? Treacherous, reckless, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Yeah. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. For a lot of different reasons, some people like to appear to be spiritual. A lot of people like to appear to be religious. They like to appear to be Christian. They like to have an appearance of godliness. But they really don't believe, not really, that their so-called spirituality that they're trying to portray has any real power to change their lives. They don't have any fear of God in them. Then he concludes this list of horrifying characteristics with these words. He said, avoid such people. Avoid such people. If we hang out with people like this, if we embrace them, for one thing, we're in danger of becoming like them. What they value, we may find ourselves learning to value, which can be horrific. But at the very least, we're in danger of giving the appearance of approving of that kind of stuff. 
And listen, this can be really painful for us. I'm not saying this is easy, especially if there's some things about these people that we really like. You know, there will be. Sometimes ungodly people may please us in some ways. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes we're in a position to get money from ungodly people. <laughs> or maybe we're in a position to get help from some ungodly people. Or, and then sometimes ungodly people are celebrities, right? I mean, at some level. Sometimes we enjoy their music. We enjoy their acting ability. They entertain us. We enjoy their athletic ability. Maybe we enjoy their political abilities. This can be really, really difficult. I mean, think about the most recent elections we've been through. I've known a lot of Christians who are really struggling, trying to decide, okay, can I vote for somebody because of their policies while trying to make it clear that I don't endorse their sinful behavior? And... I know most of us have had to deal with that and we've come to a conclusion of some kind. But we need to be careful here because we want to have our consciences trained by God's Word really, really well. And we want to listen very carefully to what God's saying through our hopefully well-trained consciences as part of knowing God's Word. But what does God really want us to do? And sometimes it's just not easy to figure that out. And in these past elections, there have been some very godly, very spiritually mature people, I believe, as far as I can tell anyway, who actually disagree with each other here. Before the 2012 election, you remember that one, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump? I knew some godly men who thought, I just can't vote for Donald Trump because he's such a disgusting guy. You know what I mean? For a while, Holly Miller told us, he, he agreed with them. He told us at Severe Heights, he, he felt the same way. He thought, I can't vote for him. He eventually changed his mind because of the policies of the two persons that were running. But that presidential election was difficult for Holly. Why? Because he had a well-trained conscience. It wasn't easy for him. And some people have said, well, wouldn't it be hypocritical to say that Bill Clinton disqualified himself to be president by immoral behavior, but Trump didn't? You know, that, that they'll argue that argument. And I need to add that, but a lot of other men, and I have a lot of respect and admiration for, like my former pastor, Jack Graham. Some of you know Jack Graham, pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas, and Franklin Graham, you know Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham, Richard Land, president of uh, Southern Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Holly invited Richard Land to come speak to us at Severe Heights before that election. But they strongly felt Christians have to vote for the lesser of two evils. And they would say, look, we're not voting for a pastor. We've got to get this in our head. We're voting for a man who will make decisions that we more likely to make decisions anyway that would be in line with biblical principles. Those were voting for a man whose policies would be more likely to be grounded in truth. I personally decided to vote for Trump, and I used this illustration. I said, you know, if I've got to have brain surgery, and there are only two men that are going to be able to do it, two men have agreed to do it, and one of them happens to be a disgusting, profane, foul-mouthed, immoral liar, a scoundrel. Maybe he's about to go to prison for murder. <laughs> but he happens to have the reputation of being one of the best brain surgeons in the world. The other guy is a really, really sweet Christian guy. <laughs> very loyal to his family. Very clean mouth. Knows the Bible pretty well. But he doesn't know anything about brain surgery except what he read about it in Wikipedia. <laughs> but he's willing to give it the old college try. He's willing to do his best. Which one do you think I'm going to choose? <laughs> oh, I'm going to choose the disgusting scoundrel. I think he's more likely to be able to do what I want him to do. 
Anyway, I'm trying to say those kind of decisions are not easy to make. Sometimes, in the case of an election, we may have to go ahead and vote for a man who has characteristics that are bad because his policies are good. You understand policies are part of a man's character, right? Doesn't necessarily mean we want to hang out with him. But when it comes to our personal lives, which I think Paul's primarily talking about here, he's saying there are times when men behave in such ungodly ways that he's listed here that we've got to turn away from them. We've got to avoid them. And sometimes that's a lot easier said than done. But we just don't ever want to get in a situation where we seem like we're justifying sinful behavior. We need to call it out because we're trying to support a friend or a family member. That can get tough. You know, Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. It can be tough to say, I really do love you to a friend or family member, but I can't approve of what you're doing. You're making a terrible mistake. This is going to have a bad outcome. Verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, since they have no respect for God's truth, these unscrupulous men that he's been describing will find ways to satisfy their immoral sexual desires. There will always be women whose desire for romance or for a man who will meet their needs for conversation or maybe their needs for admiration or affection or maybe their needs for some excitement and adventure and they feel like their husbands aren't meeting those needs. These women will be susceptible to the charms and deceptions of men like these. They don't know the Lord and the depravity just goes on and on and on. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The truth is, of course, sin, all this sin is describing, sin destroys. And Jesus came to conquer sin and to grant us repentance and faith and victory over sin if we receive it. But it's possible to learn a lot of so-called theological knowledge and maybe sound pretty impressive to people while rejecting the real truth of God's Word. Just like that 63-year-old Sunday school teacher we read about a little while ago. Met with her lover every single week. Didn't feel guilty about it. Verse 8, Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they'll not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is the only place in the Bible where those names are mentioned, Jannes and Jambres. They're not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. But we do have some ancient Jewish writings that name them. And what most scholars believe is that God supernaturally preserved those names through the centuries. He just didn't do it this time through Scripture. God certainly can do that. He could have supernaturally revealed those names to Paul as Paul wrote this down. His point is, these guys, Jannes and Jambres, who were the Egyptian magicians, who were supposed to be spiritual leaders in Egypt, but they, of course, opposed God's work through Moses. He said, the same way there are spiritual leaders, so-called so spiritual leaders, who oppose God's true work today. And that's true in every age. Satan always tries his best to raise up some counterfeits to oppose God's truth, and to oppose what God is doing. He does it every in every age. He's doing it in our age. By the way, do you remember these false Egyptian spiritual leaders were apparently able to do some supernatural things. You remember that? I think the message for us is that what matters is not impressive signs. 
It's not impressive work or success of some kind or large numbers of people. Some people think if you've got a big crowd, it must be from God. No, 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 no. It's not even apparently supernatural signs. What matters is the truth. Of course, there was a limit to what they could do. Satan may impress people for a while, but God's got him on a leash. He will only let him go so far. Eventually, their foolishness, he says, will be revealed. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul's saying, Timothy, you know me as well as anybody does. You spend a lot of time with me. We've been on a lot of journeys together. You know all about my ministry. Whatever these false teachers may be saying, you, Timothy, know the truth. Of course, Paul was beaten many times. He's thrown out of city after city. He was stoned. He suffered horrific persecutions. We'll read about that in the rest of the Scripture in the New Testament. But listen, guys. Don't, leave, don't forget verse 12 here. Paul's talking about what he's been through, but then he says in verse 12, it won't just be me, Timothy. It'll be you too. And every other true follower of Christ. If we are living a godly life in Christ Jesus, there will be those who take offense. Mark it down, guys. We're not going to please everybody. Some people will think we're strange and weird. Maybe more and more people will think that in the day we're living in. Some people will then falsely accuse us because they feel like anything they can do to put us down and stop us from spreading the gospel will be good for them. They'll call us racists. They'll call us bigots. They'll probably call us homophobes if we stand on God's truth. They will call us hypocrites. They'll misunderstand us. They'll want to keep us quiet. Some will very actively try to shut us up. Some people won't want to have anything to do with us. Some people will tell lies about us. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted one way or another. It's part of God's word, guys. It's a promise. <laughs> may not like it, but it's a promise. And listen, for Christians in China or other communist countries, or Christians in Muslim countries, or Christians where there are Hindu extremists, India, like, for example, in India, many other places in the world, Christians are going through some very, very serious persecution right now. One in every nine Christians in the world lives in an area or in a culture in which Christianity is illegal or forbidden or punished. That's what Open Doors USA says. They keep up with these kind of things. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the alternative to persecution. If we're serious about following Christ, we will be persecuted. If we're not serious, well, then we'll just go on deceiving and being deceived, going from bad to worse, being an imposter. 
Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul knows Timothy's different. He knows Timothy. He knows Timothy's learned the truth. He's firmly believed the truth. He knows the scriptures. He's been made truly wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Timothy will be persecuted for it. Eventually, he'll be martyred for it, just like Paul was soon to be martyred. We don't read about that in the Bible, but we read about it in early church history. And then he gives us these wonderful words to conclude this chapter. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Back in verse 15, Paul referred to the sacred writings. Probably he meant the Old Testament there. That's what Timothy would have had as a child. But here he seems to include more. Not only those sacred writings from the Old Testament, but all Scripture. I think he's recognizing the Spirit was using him, Paul himself, to write Scripture. This is part of it. Back in 1 Timothy 5.18, he's already quoting Luke and calling it Scripture. Do you remember that verse? Look at this verse. The scripture says, you hear that? The scripture, the scripture, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's in Deuteronomy. And the laborer deserves his wages. Where's that? It's not in the Old Testament. It's in Luke. <laughs> it's part of the scriptures already. In the same way, Peter, this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He recognized Paul's writings as part of the Holy Scripture. Look at this, verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter's right about that, isn't he? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? The other scriptures, the other scriptures. He's recognizing Paul's writings are part of Holy Scripture. Did you notice here the words breathed out, breathed out by God? God's the author of scripture. He breathed it out himself. Yes, he wrote it through men, but he's the one who breathed it out. He breathed out his word through the men. He chose to write it down. Now, I know there are people out there, skeptics, who try to argue against the Bible. And they'll say, well, it shouldn't count if the Bible just claims inspiration for itself. They'll say, anybody could do that. You could write something down and say, this is God, by the way. Well, that is true. Anybody could do that. But they can't write down words like God has written down. They can't write down prophecies that are fulfilled. I mean, the Bible's full of claims of inspiration for itself. Passages like this one and many others. I want to share a few of them with you, but I think it's good for us to review these every now and then and make sure we understand what the Bible says about itself. It's important. For example, in 2 Samuel, David said, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? He didn't say by Moses, by God. Yet Moses wrote the words down. God breathed them out through Moses. 
Jesus said this about David. David himself in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit declared, and he, and he quotes David, but it's really the Holy Spirit. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God said that through David. In Acts chapter 1, Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Spirit of God, God speaking through David. In Acts 28, we read this, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah wrote it down, but the Holy Spirit said it through Isaiah. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 3, he quotes Psalm 95. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, see, he's, he's quoting Psalm 95, but he's saying this is the Holy Spirit writing this down. It wasn't David, wasn't some other man, it was the Holy Spirit. Look at this. For the word of God, not the word of men, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the word of God. And then there's these powerful and clear words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed out this word, this word, this book. And then as you read through the Bible, and I'm sure you recognize this if you've read the Bible much, but hundreds and hundreds of times all the way through the Old Testament, you see words like, thus saith the Lord. It's not Isaiah, it's not Jeremiah, it's the Lord. So the Bible says it's breathed out by God. And we can't just dismiss that evidence like the skeptics want us to. They'll say testimony to itself can't count because if the Bible did not testify to itself. You know what the skeptics would say? They say, how on earth can you claim that's God's word? It doesn't even claim to be God's word. Why should we take it as God's word? <laughs> They're going to argue against it no matter what, of course. Now, we know there are many other ways that the scripture is confirmed as God's word. And we talk about these in the Veritas videos. If you've seen them, it'd be good for you to watch some of those and get it clearer in your head that God's given all kinds of evidence that this is his word for those who have those doubts and questions and for those who want to argue against it. He just wants to make it clear that they're being foolish. Uh, fulfilled prophecies alone would make it clear that this is God's word. Mathematicians have worked on the probability of these prophecies being fulfilled by chance, and it's ridiculous. It's, it's orders of magnitude less than the probability of marking one atom of all the atoms of the universe and choosing that one atom randomly by chance. No, it's not going to happen. I mean, it had to be supernaturally done. And then, of course, God's given us lots of evidence in our day from archaeology that shows us that the things we read about in the Bible are, really did happen. Like we can see the evidence for it. He's given us all kinds of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's given us incredible evidence from ancient manuscripts and early church history. And, of course, then there's the amazing evidence of millions of changed lives through history. Your life, my life. He's changed our lives through his word. This is God's word. Anyone with an open mind who wants to know the truth can know it. And he says God's word is profitable. Of course it's profitable 
for teaching doctrine, telling us the truth about God, about his plan, about his purposes, the truth about the world we're living in, the truth about us. God tells us the truth in his word. And it's profitable to reprove and rebuke us when we get out of line or get deceived about sin. And it's profitable to correct us and get us back in line and show us the right way to live. And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. You know what the Bible teaches us about righteousness? Something we'd never figured out on our own. Through God's word, we learn that true righteousness is not something I can attain by my efforts and by my good works. I can't. The Bible instructs us that true righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ, is a gift. And we receive his righteousness when we confess our sins and trust Jesus. Instruction in righteousness. And it makes us complete. It equips us for the life that God commands us to live here in this world, in this flesh. As long as we live, the word of God equips us. God has work for us to do. The word of God equips us for that work. Now, I want us to move on into chapter 4 for just a few minutes. Starts this chapter in a very heavy, serious kind of tone. Look at verse 1. I charge you, again, he's talking to Timothy. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So Paul's saying, now, Timothy, I'm about to tell you there's something you're going to have to do. I'm giving you a charge, a spiritual charge. And it's very, very serious. And before you hear or think about what I'm about to say, I want to remind you and get it into your head, Timothy, that you are in the presence of God. God is right there with you, Timothy. Jesus is right there with you, Timothy. You need to be fully aware, Timothy. Jesus is there with you spiritually, and he certainly will come back physically He's going to rule as king over his invisible kingdom, which is invisible right now. One day it's going to be visible. Jesus is going to judge you, Timothy, and everyone else living and dead. So, Timothy, as I give you this charge, keep your perspective. I don't want you to be focusing just on your problems there in Ephesus. I know you got plenty of them. <laughs> don't just think about all those difficult people you're responsible for in Ephesus. Yeah, I know there are plenty of them. Don't just think about all the bad teaching you're having to deal with. Yes, I know there are a lot of false teachers out there. Keep your focus, Timothy, on Jesus and hear my charge. And here it is, verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, of course, this is an awesome verse. It's a favorite verse for ordination services, as you know. Of course, if you've ever been to an ordination service, chances are pretty good you've heard this verse. And rightly so. It's perfect, isn't it, for an ordination service? Preach the Word. Not preach interesting or funny stories, although there's probably a place for interesting and funny stories. Don't misunderstand me. That's not the focus. Not preach tear-jerking stories. Some pastors are really good at that, getting people to cry. Not preaching your life story, even though there might be a time for sharing that. Not preaching sound psychology. Preach the word. Preach the word. The Greek word translated preach here is often translated proclaim. When we hear the word preach, most of us in our day, I think, and most of us raised in church anyway, we think of church auditoriums and pulpits. <laughs> 
But anytime we're trying to communicate something in the scripture to someone else, even if it's one-on-one, there's a sense in which we are preaching the word. We're proclaiming the truth of God's word to someone. Now, Paul knows this is going to be easier said than done on more than one level. And that's why I believe he prefaces these words with that very serious introduction to the charge. On one level, there will be external opposition. There'll be people who resist you, who will want you to shut up. We've already talked about this. But on another level, in order to proclaim the word, we have to be prepared. Before we can proclaim God's word, we've got to be students of God's word, right? You can't just go out there and start shooting from the hip without knowing what the word really says. We've got to decide to get serious about God's word. And that means reading it, studying it, memorizing it, teaching it. But there'll always be some huge distractions and reasons not to get it done. I promise you, there'll be all kinds of things that come to your mind that cause you to think, oh, yeah, I know it's important, maybe later. Not right now. I, no, I've got too many urgent things that need to be done. Maybe later. Have you heard that? Have you felt that? It's always later. It's a deception from the enemy. The apostles had to deal with this very early in the church. You remember this? Early in the history of the church, they were overwhelmed with the problems of distributing help to the widows. Remember that? It's an important issue. But it wasn't as important as prayer and preaching the word. It seems like it's inevitable. It will always happen. When you really get serious about studying God's Word, it is amazing <laughs> how many responsibilities seem to crowd in on us so we keep on pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back. And it's the really important thing in order to do things that are sort of important but much less important than preaching the Word. It was happening to them. So you remember how they handled it? They appointed some men, deacons, to take care of it so they could concentrate on praying and preaching the word. So Paul's telling Timothy here, Timothy, you've got to do this. You can't get sidetracked. There are going to be a lot of things that seem urgent, and they're going to interfere with the preaching and proclamation of God's truth. But not only that, Timothy was supposed to be so familiar with the scriptures and how to apply them to the lives of the Christians there in Ephesus, where he was, that he would be ready in a heartbeat Ready anytime, ready all the time, in season, out of season. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Be ready, Timothy, even if it seems inconvenient. You remember in the last chapter, he concluded with verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now he says to Timothy, on the basis of that, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. When the Bible is preached, it will do those things. And we must let the Bible do those things. We mustn't shy away because these things are distasteful or uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for a lot of us to give rebuke and reproof and exhortation. It's also uncomfortable to receive it. If you've ever been on the receiving end, and sometimes we will be, if we're serious about our relationship with Christ, we better accept it joyfully. And I'm not saying it'll always be right. We need to say, thank you, Lord, that you're willing to put somebody in my life to give me a chance to maybe see some blind spots here. Thank you, Lord. I mean, we all have blind spots. You agree with that? Of course we do. There are things we can't see. That's one reason we need the whole body of Christ, so people can help us see our blind spots. Now, our flesh doesn't want to hear it. Our flesh will get irritated. Our flesh will get defensive. May have want to attack somebody back <laughs> when God uses somebody. Maybe a preacher. Maybe our wife. 
maybe a friend, maybe a family member, but God will send somebody from time to time to reprove us. It, it may not be easy for them. It may be pretty tough for them. But we'd better learn to turn that irritation into gratitude and joy. That's part of keeping a teachable spirit, guys, a humble spirit, as opposed to a spirit of, I know what's right, I know what's best, kind of a pride, spiritual pride and egotism and stubbornness. If we react with irritation, we're liable to think, who are you to tell me that? You don't know what's going on. you got your own problems. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> and, of course, that builds a barrier between us and others. It makes it very difficult to reprove and rebuke us. In fact, God says, a scorner, just quit trying. You're not going to receive anything but grief. <laughs> but if a relationship with him is not what it should be, we'll probably get irritated. Maybe we'll get angry. Maybe we'll get resentful. Maybe we'll get bitter. So there's difficulty on the receiving end. There's no question about it. For most of us, we don't like it. <laughs> we don't want somebody reproving us and rebuking us and exhorting us. And sometimes we need it. But listen, guys, it makes it difficult on the giving end, too. Paul knew that Timothy would have to deal with irritated people. And he knew that Timothy would be tempted just to tell them what they might want to hear. Just water it down a little bit. Just kind of soft pedal this stuff. So he won't have to deal with their anger or their irritation or their resentment or the reactions. And he says, don't do that, Timothy. You've got to preach the word. You've got to reprove. You've got to rebuke. You've got to exhort. You've got to tell people what they need to hear, not just what they may want to hear. <laughs> and that's a temptation for many, many pastors today. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to think like that. It's very uncomfortable. Many pastors. I'm going to go just one step further here. I want you to listen closely to me. Very often, reproof has to be personal. And it's very difficult for us. I've known preachers who wanted to be able to sound very strong in the pulpit. They would pound that pulpit and raise their voices when they talked about certain kinds of sin. But, but what it meant was they knew that people sitting out there listening to them could choose or not to choose to take it personally. But I've known those same kind of guys who were terrified and absolutely refused to go to an individual and say something like, listen, I love you very much, but what I have to say to you is very difficult, but I've got to talk to you about this. What you're doing is wrong. I see some sin here in your life. I have to warn you. It's my responsibility as your pastor as, or as your teacher or as your friend. The Bible tells us we're all to admonish one another. That's part of the body of Christ. Have you noticed in Paul's letters... <laughs> He doesn't hesitate to get personal in a very specific way. In chapter 4 and verse 10, he doesn't say, some people have left me. He names him. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Gone to Thessalonica. Demas, he's the one. He's deserted me. Verse 14, he didn't say, there's some people out there who've hurt me pretty badly. Watch out for them. No, he says, Alexander did it. Alexander the coppersmith. Did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. He strongly opposed our message. It's very specific. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, he said, But avoid irreverent babble, for to lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. But he didn't stop there. He said, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He gets very specific. Who swerve from the truth. He doesn't say some people have swerved from the truth. He says Hymenaeus. Swerve from the truth. Philetus, swerve from the truth. Now, now, 
Now, don't, don't go overboard here. Don't get unbalanced. We need to always, when we're reading Scripture and studying God's principles and God's truth, we need to find God's straight and narrow. Get the balance. Don't get unbalanced. Don't fall into this ditch. Don't fall into that ditch. So don't get, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that every single person that has a problem has to be dealt with so publicly. I think what was going on here is these guys had been very public in their error. They'd been very public in their sin. Therefore, their correction had to be very public. Most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, it should be very private. But it has to be direct. And it has to be personal. And I might add, very uncomfortable. <laughs> because when we try to help someone who has a sin issue or a blind spot, we're always taking a risk, aren't we? That they, and maybe their friends and loved ones, will be really upset with us. They may get angry with us for daring to talk to them about this. They say, who are you to throw the first stone? You know, you know, you hear all that kind of stuff. We may be trying to be as gracious and kind and gentle and loving as we possibly can be, and we do need to go overboard to sound loving and kind and gracious and gentle. I mean, we don't need to sound it. We need to be that way, but certainly needs to sound like that when it comes out of our mouth. But sometimes it just won't be received well. But we must reprove and rebuke and exhort with enough clarity and specificity that the person who has the problem actually knows what we're talking about. It can't be so vague and general and, and, and unclear that they don't even know what we're talking about. For example, let's suppose that we were involved in a church where there was a problem with some of the women who were dressing immodestly. And let's suppose the pastor gets up and warns the congregation in a general kind of way that immodest dress is inappropriate, that it's a stumbling block for guys who often have a huge battle struggling against lust. Well, that would certainly be a good thing for a pastor to preach. It needs to be said. But many of the women who might be wearing immodest clothing might think that the pastor is talking about someone who dressed more immodestly than they were dressing and I know for some women, it's really hard to appreciate that wearing immodest clothing can be such a huge problem for the guys. And on this particular issue, I personally think the best way for a church to handle it is to have some godly women in the church who understand the issue very well, and they're very mature in the Lord, to help communicate with these younger women. But unless they get one-on-one, -on -one, many of the women with the problem just won't get it. They don't see it. They have to have someone help them see it. Seems to me. Here's another example of why we've got to be specific. If I warn about false teachers, just in a general way, and we do need to do that, right? I mean, it's a good thing. We need to warn people about false teachers. But if we don't get specific, some people will think, well, he's talking about people besides my favorite false teacher. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There are lots of false teachers on television. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be preachers of the gospel, but they're false. And sometimes we have to name people like Joel Osteen or Ken Copeland or T.D. Jakes. You understand what I'm saying? If you just say false teachers in general and some of the people out there listening to you love Joel Osteen, they'll think you're talking about Ken Copeland or somebody else. <laughs> See what I'm saying? They need to hear specifics. And did you notice back in verse 2 that he adds with complete patience. He didn't just say with patience. That would have been pretty strong, but he makes it stronger. He underlines it with the word complete or great, with great patience. 
don't quit too soon. Don't just run out on the situation. We can't give up too quickly and just dust our hands off and say, I'm sick of this. They're not responding. <laughs> now, guys, I have to be honest with you right here. This is difficult for me personally. And I think it's difficult for a lot of us who have the gift of exhortation. <laughs> and, and I tell you, if you want to talk to Vicki, <laughs> she will underline what I'm about to tell you here. She will tell you and confirm that if you doubt what I'm saying, <laughs> you probably won't doubt it. But if you want to talk to her, she will definitely underline it because she knows. She's my wife. When I try to help somebody see what the scripture has to say about his or her situation, it's very tempting for me to just expect them to hop to it. <laughs> just change. <laughs> just do it. Just get it right. Right now. <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> but I have to remind myself the truth is change is often slow and maybe a little bit jerky and a little bit tedious and with a lot of setbacks. And instead of being patient, I tend to get frustrated. I tend to get irritated and maybe discouraged. And it's almost like God's having to say to me, Steve, 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 be patient, will you? <laughs> you present my word and in time I will cause it to bear fruit. You have to be patient. And every now and then when I get a biblical perspective on myself, I'm very embarrassed about how impatient I can be. He adds the word teaching, which I take to mean patient opening and unveiling of the scriptures, lots of explanation so they can understand it. The Holy Spirit can take that teaching and eventually turn on the light in a person's heart and mind. Timothy was supposed to do that. So are we. Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And in our day, our culture, I believe one of the greatest problems that the church has is the prosperity gospel, or sometimes they call themselves word faith teachers. We've talked about them from time to time. But it's a huge problem. And these guys are very, very popular. And it's easy to see why. Because instead of the God of the Bible, they're presenting a God, little G God, that they say is the God of the Bible, but it's not the God of the Bible. Their God is an imaginary God who's there to just give you whatever you want. You push all the right buttons, which usually includes sending in some faith money to these guys who are getting filthy rich off other people who are hoping they'll get rich because they're sending in money to these guys and they call that seed money. Now they're going to harvest, reap a harvest of lots more money. You find it just that right combination inside you to believe what you want is what's going to happen and you can have the money you want and you can have the health you want and you can have the job you want. You can have the relationships you want. And they're thinking God's there just to give you what you want. But the God of the Bible says, no, no, no. I am not your cosmic Santa Claus. I'm not a cosmic vending machine. If you push the right buttons, you get the right candy. I'm your creator. And I created you for a purpose. And that purpose was not just so you could satisfy your greeds. I've created you to bring me glory. I know what you need. And I'll always take care of your needs. I promised I will. 
but you may not try to simply just use me to satisfy your greed and your lust for the things of this world. You're not desiring me. You're desiring stuff. You're just trying to use me to get the stuff you really want. Your God is money or stuff. Any of you ever heard of a Christian hip-hop rapper named Shailene? S-H-A-I-L-I-N-N-E. You keep up with rap, don't you? <laughs> well, I don't know these guys very well. I'm not much into rap myself, but I found this one time. It was several years ago. And in 2013, he wrote a rap song called False Teachers, and he used a dollar mark for the S in <laughs> false and teachers. <laughs> and, and I want to read the lyrics to you because I thought he did a wonderful job. It's a strong warning against the prosperity gospel and word faith teachers. Plus, I thought it might give us a little encouragement about some of these Christian rap artists. There are some real serious Christian rap artists out there who are doing a good job. They're, it's pretty amazing, and they communicate with a part of the culture that I'd never be able to communicate with, that's for sure. And I can't rap this out like Shailene, <laughs> but I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to put it on the screen so you can see it as I read it. And here's his song. Here are the lyrics. False Teachers by Shailene. One, two, one, two, yeah. Special dedication to my brothers and sisters on the great continent of Africa, to saints in Malawi, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Zimbabwe. Don't be deceived by what America is sending y'all, man. I'm going to interrupt the lyrics here for just a second to say this. Are you aware that the prosperity gospel has been incredibly popular and, and, and deceived millions and millions of people in Africa? It's really sad. It's really bad. Uh, and he's warning them about this. Let's get back to the song now. Here's lyrics. Let me begin while there's still ink left in my pen. I'm set to contend for truth. You can bet will offend. Deception within the church, man. Who's letting them in? We talked about this years ago. Let's address it again. Yeah. I ain't really trying to start beef, but some who claim to be part of his sheep got some sharp teeth. They're wolves. And cast at me when you criticize them. But Jesus told us, Matthew 7, 16, we can recognize them. And God forbid that for the love of some fans, I keep quiet and watch them die with their blood on my hands. So there's nothing left for me to do except to speak to you in the spirit of Jude 3 and 2 Peter 2. And I know that some will label me a Pharisee because today the only heresy is saying that there is heresy. <laughs> I'll dare to be specific and drop some clarity on the popularity of the gospel of prosperity. Turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. Their pastors speak bogus statements, financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. Ungodly and wicked, ask yourself how can they not be convicted? treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type because some of their statements are right. That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. And I hear it all the time when they speak on the block. Even unbelievers are shocked how they're fleecing the flock. Should be obvious then, yet I'll explain why it's sin. Peep, the Bible it's in, 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, talks about how the desire for riches has left many souls on fire and stitches mired in ditches. Tell me, who would teach you to pursue as a goal the very thing that the Bible said will ruin your soul? 
Yet they're encouraging the love of money. To make it worse, they're exporting this garbage into other countries. My heart breaks even now as I'm rhyming. Do you want to know what all these teachers have in common? It's called self-ism, the fastest growing religion. They just dress it up and call it Christian. Don't be deceived by this funny biz. If you come to Jesus for money, then he's not your God. Money is. Jesus is not a means to an end. The gospel is he came to redeem us from sin. And that's the message forever, I'll yell. If you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Talk to them. Joel Osteen, false teacher. Let them know. Creflo Dollar is a false teacher. Who else? Who else? Benny Hinn is a false teacher. I know they're popular, but don't let them deceive you. Talk to them. T.D. Jakes is a false teacher. Tell the truth. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. Let them know. Paula White is a false teacher. Use your discernment. Let the Bible lead you. Keep going. Fred Price is a false teacher. Tell the truth. Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher. Who else? Who else? Robert Tilton is a false teacher. I know they're popular, but don't let them deceive you. Talk to them. Eddie Long is a false teacher. Let them know. Juanita Bynum is a false teacher. Who else? Who else? Paul Crouch is a false teacher. Use your discernment. Let the Bible lead you. And then Shilin concluded his lyrics with a passage of scripture from Second Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's the end of the song. By the way, I probably should say this. He mentioned Joyce Meyer in that list. I have read that Joyce Meyer renounced her former involvement in prosperity gospel preaching. And then I've read that, well, actually, she kind of embraced it again. So I'm not sure where she is. God knows. But they're pretty strong words, aren't they? And I appreciate what some of these Christian rappers are doing. I don't personally enjoy listening to rap. It kind of gets under my skin. But I appreciate what these guys are doing when they're teaching God's truth. And they're reaching people, like I said, that a lot of us would never reach. But that word faith false theology is so seductive. They can take a lot of scripture and they can say a lot of good things. And you might listen to one of them on any one occasion. And say, well, that's not bad. And it may not be, but you better listen to the whole thing. You see, ultimately, they're appealing to selfish desires, greed, to have a God that will help us get what we want. People have itching ears for this sort of thing and they'll gobble it up. They'll send in their money, hoping to get more money. And even in churches, if you take a stand against some of these people, they're deceived people who will say, oh, you don't understand. This person's helped me so much. They're very biblical. They're not like some of the others. I'm telling you guys, watch out. The reason they're so deceptive is because a lot of what they say really is true. They do have a lot of good things to say. But you have to listen over the long run and subtly mixed in, if you read or listen closely, will be some horrific misuse of Scripture and deadly false teaching. Do you hear them talking about sin and repentance? Not usually very much. You hear them talking about the righteousness of Christ in you? You talking about walking in humility and grace and being content with what you have? 
Oh, they may talk about being positive. They may talk about being negative, positive thinking versus negative thinking. Some of it sounds kind of new agey, you know. People don't mind nearly so much to be told, you need to start thinking more positively. That's not a Bible concept, by the way. You need to be thinking more biblically. <laughs> but they, they don't want to hear you say, you got to repent of your sin. you got to repent of your sinful thinking. you got to let Jesus cleanse you of your greed and your selfishness and your pride, your laziness or whatever. Let your life be all about him instead of all about you. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear somebody say, oh, you just need to think positively. Everything will get better. False teaching has been around from the beginning. And every generation has to deal with it in one form or another. You remember Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Maybe the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. <laughs> he spent the last four years of his life from 1887 to 1891. He died in January 1892. Battling what was known at that time as the downgrade controversy. Did you ever hear of it? His church was the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And it was the largest church in a Baptist denomination in England called the Baptist Union. Spurgeon began to watch that denomination being taken over by ministers who were accepting Darwinism and very liberal approaches to the scriptures. And he fought it with everything he had. But eventually he realized he wasn't going to win that battle. He was way too outnumbered. So he just led his church to remove itself, to withdraw from the Baptist Union. One of Spurgeon's major points to his congregation at that time was that when you allow just a little liberalism just a little Darwinism into the church, just a little downgrade led to a greater and greater downgrading all the way into apostasy once you start down that road. Well, when he led his church to exit the Baptist Union, the Baptist Union immediately censured him, of course. And sadly, in a few short years, Spurgeon was dead and the Baptist Union was hopelessly lost to liberalism. In the year 1900, this would be eight years after Spurgeon's death. Spurgeon's wife, her name was Susanna, she wrote these words. So far as the Baptist Union was concerned, little was accomplished by Mr. Spurgeon's witness bearing and withdrawal. But in other respects, I've had abundant proofs that the protest was not in vain. Many who were far gone on the downgrade were stopped in their perilous descent and by God's grace were brought back to the upline. Others who were unconsciously slipping were made to stand firmly on the rock. While at least for a time in all of the churches, evangelical doctrines were preached with a clearness and emphasis which had long been lacking. End quote. Spurgeon stayed in the battle until his death. And he never saw the results he hoped for. Some people will argue that he should have stayed in the Baptist Union and fought to make it right again. Some of his own students argued for that. But he felt there's just not enough hope that that could happen, so he withdrew. Here's my point. Staying in the battle will sometimes be very controversial. And sometimes it will require us to make really tough decisions. And sometimes we may not see the results that we'd like to see. That doesn't excuse us. Two weeks after the Baptist Union censured him, Spurgeon preached a message entitled, Holding Fast the Faith. And he closed this message with these words, Everybody admires Luther. Yes, yes. But you don't want anyone else to do the same today. When you go to the zoological gardens, you all admire the bear. How would you like a bear at home? 
or a bear wandering loose about the street. You tell me it would be unbearable. <laughs> and no doubt you're right. So we admire a man who was firm in the faith, say, 400 years ago. The past ages are sort of bear pit or iron cage for him. But such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their compeers had said, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row and get ourselves into disgrace. Let's go to our chambers, put on our nightcaps, and sleep over the bad times. Perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps, and the pestiferous bogs of error would have swallowed all. These men loved the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled on. Note what we owe them, and let us pay to our sons the debt we owe our fathers. It is today as it was in the Reformers' days. Decision is needed. Here's the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who've had the gospel passed to us by martyrs' hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line of it. The faith I hold bears upon it marks of the blood of my ancestors. Shall I deny their faith for which they left their native land to sojourn here? Shall we cast away the treasure which was handed to us through the bars of prisons? When I think of how others have suffered for the faith, a little scorn or unkindness seems a mere trifle, not worthy of mention. An ancestry of lovers of the faith ought to be a great plea with us to abide by the Lord God of our fathers and the faith in which they lived. As for me, I must hold the old gospel. I can do no other. God helping me, I will endure the consequences of what men think my obstinacy. Look, you sirs, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another. And all these generations will be tainted and injured if we're not faithful to God and to His truth today. We've come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and our grandchildren's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and His Word. I charge you, not only by your ancestry, but by your posterity, that you seek to win the commendation of your Master, that though you dwell where Satan's seat is, you yet hold fast His name and do not deny his faith. God grant us faithfulness for the sake of the souls around us. How is the world to be saved if the church is false to her Lord? How are we to lift the masses if our fulcrum is removed, if our gospel is uncertain? What remains but increasing misery and despair? Stand fast, my beloved, in the name of God. I, your brother in Christ, entreat you to abide in the truth. Quit yourselves like men, be strong. The Lord sustain you for Jesus' sake. 
We can learn a lot from Charles Spurgeon. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And when we speak the truth, as Paul did, and as Timothy would, and as Spurgeon did, and Shilin has, there'll be plenty of irritated people who'll become angry. And you'll have a certain amount of suffering to do for standing on the truth. Paul says here, just endure it, expect it, and endure it, and keep on evangelizing, keep on preaching the word, don't quit. Verse 6, and almost every time I read 1 Timothy and get to these words, I find myself weeping. Such a powerful moment in Paul's life. Such a powerful moment in the history of the church and such a powerful encouragement for us. Some people call it Paul's epitaph, which he wrote for himself. Verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. Do you notice the words, for I, begin verse 6 there. He's given the reason why he just wrote verse 5. But you, Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, complete your ministry, because my ministry is ending. I'm leaving. My time on this earth is over. Timothy, you've got to get on with it. You have to fight the good fight, Timothy. You have to finish the race. You have to keep the faith. So what's Paul doing? He's handing the torch to Timothy. Paul's ministry is over. Timothy's going to be his successor. Same thing happened to Joshua. Remember when Moses' life was over, Joshua had to be his successor. Same thing happened to Elisha. Elijah's ministry was over, and he had to take it up. Timothy faces this unthinkable task of succeeding who? The Apostle Paul? Are you kidding me? <laughs> what a moment in church history. Did he do it well? Well, the writer of Hebrews wrote, You should know that our brother Timothy's been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Released from what? Well, evidently he was imprisoned. Sounds like he'd passed the test, doesn't it? Sounds like he'd been faithful to preach the word in a difficult situation and it had gotten him arrested. He had indeed been willing to suffer for Christ. There are early Christian writings that tell us that when Timothy was an old man, he tried to interfere in a procession that was there in Ephesus to honor the pagan goddess Diana in order to try to preach the gospel to these people. And because they got angry at him for interrupting the procession, they began to beat him and they stoned him to death. So Timothy definitely passed the test. He endured suffering, just as Paul had told him to. He endured suffering until death. Did you notice that Paul said he was being poured out like a drink offering? We understand it's kind of a poetic reference to his soon coming death by beheading. But knowing that Paul's mind was full of the Old Testament Scripture, most likely he had Numbers 15 in mind. You remember the Israelites were still wandering in the wilderness, knowing that all the adults were going to die there before they arrived in the Promised Land. And God gave Moses instructions for some offerings they were to offer God when their kids finally got into the Promised Land. 
And this would be the kind of thing that would give the Israelites hope for the future as a nation anyway, even though they knew themselves they were not going to make it. But, but as a nation, they would finally arrive. And this is how they were going to make an offering to God. The offering was to be made up of three parts. There was a sacrificial animal, and it was consumed by fire on the altar. There was a meal offering made up of flour and oil. And third, and this was the last, there was a drink offering, and it was wine poured out on the previous two offerings. So Paul evidently sees himself as an offering to God. For 30 years or more, he's presented his body to God as a living sacrifice and as a meal offering. That's the first part of the offering. Now he's at the final stage. He's ready to be poured out, <laughs> and his blood is going to pour from his body in those seconds following his beheading. So the offering's almost complete. The time of his departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who've loved his appearing. Love which appearing? Both. <laughs> we love his first appearing, don't we? The fact that he appeared in a manger in Bethlehem to be one of us, to live a sinless life in a fallen, sinful world that we're living in, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise again from the dead, to ascend up into heaven. We love that first appearing. But we also love his second appearing, don't we? He's promised he's coming back bodily. He's coming back. John said it this way, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Paul concludes this, his final letter, with some very touching personal instructions. And it's very easy to sense Paul's emotions in these words. You feel the emotions. For time's sake, I'm just going to read them without comment. We're taking way too much time here, but but I'm going to begin in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May I be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Nisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Father, these words just overwhelm us. You're an awesome God. And Lord, we want to take this charge that Paul gave Timothy and then you caused to be written in your word for us 
preserved through the centuries for us, for such a day as we live in today, when, Lord, we see all around us people who claim the name of Jesus, even in some of our more traditional evangelical churches, but who are rejecting your truth, who are compromising, who are trying to please people instead of you. Lord, would you give us the grace to hear his charge clearly and to stand firm, to preach the word in season and out of season, and to stand firmly and proclaim your truth clearly and accurately without fear of what people will do to us. Lord, we know that the time is short. We have very little time left here on this earth. We know that we're going to be with you in eternity, and that time is going to be eternal forever. Won't be any time. And so, Lord, we know that the time is coming soon when we'll look back and all this will seem so brief. So please give us the courage, the strength of character, the strength of heart and mind, the knowledge of your word as we study your word to stand firm until you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.